Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. When Franklin D. Roosevelt was inaugurated president in 1933, the White House staff numbered fewer than 50 people, and most federal departments were lightly staffed as well. As the United States became a world power, the staff of the executive office increased 20-fold, and the staffing of federal agencies blossomed comparably. On this episode, airing in the midst of the transition of President-elect Joe Biden, you'll hear Brookings Press Director Bill Finan's interview with Stephen Hess and James Fifner, the authors of the Brookings Press title, Organizing the Presidency. In this fourth edition of the landmark volume, first published in 1976, Hess and Fifner argue that the successes and failures of presidents from Roosevelt through Trump have resulted in large part from how the president deployed and used White House staffers and other top officials responsible for carrying out Oval Office policy. In this conversation, Hess and Fifner reflect on earlier transitions, but also have a lot to say about President Trump's transition in 2016 and what is happening now. Hess is a veteran staffer of the Eisenhower and Nixon administrations, an advisor to Presidents Ford and Carter, and now a senior fellow emeritus at Brookings. He's also the author of over a dozen books on topics ranging from the presidency, U.S. politics, political cartoons, and the news media. Fifner is a professor of public policy at George Mason University, an author or editor of 10 books on the presidency and American government. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. And now here's Bill Finan with Stephen Hess and James Fifner. Fred, thanks. And Stephen, Jim, welcome. Organizing the Presidency, fourth edition. The first edition appeared in 1976, and here we are 44 years and nine presidents later. I think I have that right. That's an amazing lifespan for a book, and it says everything about the value and worth of what's in it. So congratulations on this new edition. Steve, what was your goal originally in writing this book? What prompted you to want to do a book on organizing the presidency? It seems so odd now. It would seem so odd to Jim, particularly, who has gone through the whole history of academic presidency study. And at that point, there really wasn't a book like this, Organizing the Presidency. People tended to write a history of a president or a history of a president on a particular issue or something like that. The idea of writing the management of it was really unusual for academics who really weren't all that interested in questions of management. So in a funny way, I had a very open field at that time, which is really why that first edition was so widely adopted. And it's continued to be adopted since, and we hope this fourth edition continues that trend. The joy of having a book published by Brookings, the idea that 44 years ago, I'm still around, I could write a book and we could live through a second edition. And then Jim joined us with the third edition and with the fourth edition. And it's wonderful to have a book that now concludes with presidents who myths weren't alive when we started the first edition. So it's really a very nice feeling for me and to have my colleague Jim to have a book that has carried over presidency by presidency so that we're now left with the whole history of the modern presidency. Franklin Roosevelt through Donald Trump, 14 presidents. And the wonderful part about it, I'm sure Jim would agree with this, was that those 14 presidents 
half, seven were Republicans and seven were Democrats. So this is not a book while people may be busy arguing about ideology, about being liberal and conservative. This has nothing to do with it. This is a book about presidents, Republicans or Democrats, on how successful they were at running the White House, the government. I think, I think Steve was really prescient at that time because it, the presidency was just beginning to grow. And of course, at FDR's time, it was really informal. Eisenhower began to organize it, but then it began to grow larger, particularly during the Nixon administration. And it became much more of an administrative and management challenge than it had been in the past. And so the approach of the book has become more relevant to each president as we go on because it continues to be larger. Policy direction gets more centralized into the White House. It's continued to do that. And that's what this book is about. And I think one of the interesting aspects of this book is that Steve and I have, have shown that presidents of both parties have been able to manage the White House quite reasonably. Of course, there have been mistakes and so forth, but have been able to do a good job. And the future presidents should also be able to do a good job with the example of the histories that we've uh, looked at in this book. Another thing, Jim, which is you're such an optimist to express the good things that presidents have done. But the remarkable thing is also, and you're right, of course, we've gone from president to president, but every one of them, with the exception of Trump, these people were all had been governors. They all had been senators. Many of them had been vice presidents themselves. And the errors that they made, each one in their own separate way. And I think that's sort of fascinating. Not only what can we learn from how they organized the presidency, where they went wrong, where they fell off the track in their efforts, often right at the beginning, too, which is why that makes it so interesting as we're in a transition period today. What we've concluded is that there's no one way to run the presidency, but there's many problems that different presidents have encountered and that future presidents can try to avoid those problems that Steve was referring to. The book begins with FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and there's a quote from Joseph Alsop that you used, a famous columnist, that was so concretely captured what you were just talking about, the simplicity of the presidential office at that time, how basic it was. And I just want to read a bit of it. There literally was no White House staff of the modern type with policymaking functions when Roosevelt became president. Two extremely pleasant, unassuming, and even efficient men, Stephen Early and Marvin McIntyre, handled the president's day-to-day schedule and routine, the donkey work of his press relations, and such like. There was a secretarial camarilla of highly competent, dedicated ladies who were led by Missy Luhan, who were also lesser figures to have all travel arrangements, the enormous flow of correspondence and the like. But that was that. It just sounds so very quaint. It sounds like the Washington, D.C. of old that many of us visited when it was just this quiet, quiet, fallow spot. But that changed. That was soon to change, as you point out. What were some of the changes that FDR put in place and that gave us a modern presidency? And why did he do it? What the quote tells me, in a sense, which is so fascinating, is that it was a little bunch. It could all sit around a table virtually, the White House staff had a couple secretaries and so forth. And it was the question of how the organization became a bureaucracy, how it added on. And in many ways, that's the story that we're telling as we go from presidents to presidents, some adding their own offices but also just adding where they wanted to control the government from. As the White House grew in that regard, the importance of the cabinet diminished. And I think the tremendous growth of the United States economy, so FDR coming in in 1933, got the Great Depression, many, many agencies created to deal with the Great Depression. Then World War II came along, and so that became a much greater 
management challenge just in terms of making policy. And so in 1939, FDR was able to reorganize the government and created the executive office of the president in 1939. And also about 1940, the Bureau of the Budget grew to about 500 people. And those two entities, the EOP being in, BOB being in the executive office of the president, gave the president many more tools, people, and ways of trying to organize and manage the executive branch. You point out in the book that Truman, when he came into the office, came with a totally different mindset than Roosevelt had on how to run the office of the president. Can you tell us what that was, that different mindset? Well, each one is different. It's so fascinating how much the presidency reflected the president, how different each president was and how much they drew on. Just as Roosevelt, who was a patrician, who went to Harvard, who had a law degree, who came from the largest state, followed by Harry Truman, who never went to college at all, became a very self-educated man. His experience in the Army in World War I made a difference. And importantly, of course, he was a politician who served in the United States Senate, and that was his major background. So one had been an executive and one had been a legislator, and that very much influenced the way they proceeded. I think right after Truman, then Eisenhower really changed or established the administrative presidency, creating a chief of staff and a very logical hierarchical order in the White House. And then he had dealt with the White House as Supreme Allied Commander of both FDR and Truman and thought that they were just a mess. So when he came in, he wanted to straighten it out. And in fact, he did and established the basis of the modern administrative presidency. Steve, I'm assuming this is your chapter earlier on, on Eisenhower. You quote Eisenhower saying, coming in, that he wanted to create an atmosphere of greater serenity and mutual confidence. You were there. Was it that? I shouldn't go into that, of course, but that's where I came personally into the story. I was just 25 years old when I became a member of Eisenhower's staff. And wow, I mean, there was a man who knew how to run things. And each one of us knew what our place in that organization was what was expected of us. And you could be tough about it. I don't mean it was a jolly place, but it was a place, at least when I was there, which was sort of toward the end of the administration, where the pieces fit together. And very often, unfortunately, that was not the case with some other administrations. It took a long time, if ever, for the pieces to fit together. But for me, it was wonderful to have been a part of that well-functioning organization that really knew why it was there. Its desires were not broad. I understand it. He wanted to keep the peace and balance the budget. Today, that sounds pretty grand, but that's (laughs) basically what we were all about. And ironically, shortly after the Eisenhower administration, he did not get much credit for running a very organized office. And people thought that he was sort of out of touch and so forth. But in more recent years, research has shown that, in fact, he was very on top of his whole administration. As Steve said, it ran well and he knew what was happening. And so the opinion of him in public opinion and scholars' opinion has increased greatly since the 1950s. And he's now one of the top presidents whereas before, immediately after office, he was not seen in that light. I was reading that chapter with that in mind, what, what Fred Greenstein, I think it was the author, The Hidden Hand Presidency of Eisenhower. And it comes through in that chapter, too, that he did have his hand on the tiller. He wasn't just totally absent. I'm going to jump to the present because the newest edition brings us from the end of the George W. Bush presidency into the Obama and Trump presidencies. And since the last two are the freshest in our minds, 
And what you said earlier is very, very true. Like each president stamps with his character. What would you say of the Obama years and organizing the presidency? What lessons can we draw from that? Well, I think, of course, that fascinated me beyond that, of course, was that Obama was the first black president. And that was truly historic. And how that affected him in different ways, I think, is very interesting. It's starting to come out now as his own memoirs are there. For example, at that time, of course, liberals and blacks were very disappointed. They expected him to do all sorts of things that he understood, as he said, that he was not a president for blacks, he was a president for all Americans. And I think ultimately, we give him higher marks than many other academics give him in terms of what he accomplished, given, of course, at most of the time he didn't have a Congress with him. And of course, importantly, what we're living through now is the uh, Obamacare, is the health proposal. And I think that a real contrast between Obama's approach and his predecessor, George W. Bush, who characterized himself as a gut player in making decisions quickly, whereas Obama was much more detached, much more analytical in the way he ran the White House. But he did not change the centralization of control in the White House. An example, Eric Holder began the administration as attorney general. Obama was going to delegate to Holder part of the legal aspect of the administration. And after a mistake or two, Rahm Emanuel, chief of staff, formidable chief of staff, pulled it back in and said, no, we're going to make sure you have a minder and the White House runs these things. And also, and very much in contrast to Donald Trump, Obama was known as no drama Obama because he was always calm and collected and on top of things, did things in an orderly way and vast contrast with Donald Trump. Something that came through through the book for me is how essential, important, and often in the case of like, say, Rahm Emanuel, colorful too, the chiefs of staffs could be in presidential administrations. Very much so. And that's one of our key recommendations is the importance of the chief of staff. And of course, illustrates not only the ones that were successful, like James Baker, which is an interesting case under Reagan, because there was a person who was not of his branch of the Republican Party. He came from California. He had his own people. He knew a lot about running things because he had been the governor of the largest state for eight years. But he went out of that realm and picked somebody who had been very close to his predecessor and was brilliant in terms of how he ran the organization. So that was the good chief of staff. What was sort of fascinating with that, with the Reagan administration, is having chosen the good chief of staff in the first administration, in the second administration, they chose the bad chief of staff. What had they learned and couldn't duplicate when they went to Reagan, who had been secretary of the Treasury, who was an example of being too forceful, too encompassing as the chief of staff. So again, we watched this office move back and forth till it got it right. As some did and some didn't. Yeah, I think you have to have a chief of staff, but the person can't be too overbearing, as Steve said. And as good a job as Sherman Adams did for Ike, he became overbearing to other people, finally had to resign. Don Regan had to resign. John Sununu for George H.W. Bush finally had to resign. And so there has to be some sort of balance there. But I think 
you have to have one. And Bill Clinton realized intellectually that he needed to have a chief of staff, but he appointed Mac McClarty, miscasting him, and finally had to bring in Leon Panetta to tighten up the White House organization. And Donald Trump did not learn that lesson about the chief of staff. He named a chief of staff, his first one rights previous, but was unwilling to delegate the authority to actually run the White House. And then John Kelly, Marine General, came in and tried to tighten things up in terms of the size of meetings, who had walk-in privileges to the White House and, or I mean, to the Oval Office and so forth. He couldn't do it. And then Mick Mulvaney came in, could not assert any authority, and now Mark Meadows. And so it's not the problem of those chiefs of staff. It was a problem in the sense of Donald Trump, who did not want to delegate enough authority. Somebody short of the president has got to be in charge of managing the White House for the president. And that brings us to Donald Trump. And I was going to ask about his four chiefs of staffs. I don't know if that's a record in terms of (laughs) what you call it, the speed dating that seemed to be going on and has seemed to have gone on in this administration. We're still at enough time left here. There might be a fifth chief of staff, perhaps, but I don't know. We'll see. But it's not only four chiefs of staff. It was four national security advisors, four press secretaries. And when you get down to the cabinet office, Homeland Security, it was five of them two confirmed by the Senate, three who were acting. So ultimately, they were either fired or they resigned. And so it really goes right back to the character of the president. In fact, again, if you looked at the chief of the National Security Advisors, the four of them, they were so utterly different. Each one had important characteristics. And you have to ask yourself, what was it that the president was seeing? in choosing one who was a great intellectual and one who was a non-intellectual and that sort of thing, one who was a military man and one who was not. So all of this goes back to the question that we ultimately raised, and it comes right down to who is the president of the United States. I think that that's exactly right, and it's reflected in the turnover. About 10 people have turned over in the cabinet in the first four years, a record in terms of turnover. And also, Katie Duntempas, a Brookings scholar, has calculated the turnover of the top of what she calls the 18, the top people in the executive office of the president, and it's over 90 percent, much more than any other modern president. This turnover, which creates chaos, which is what it's all about, it's not just one goes in and one goes out. You take the four national security advisors. Everyone has a staff. And when he goes out, so does his staff. So another staff comes in. So the ultimate change in any of these offices is not modest at the top. It's severe as it goes down through the ranks. In the book, you attribute Trump's behavior to the fact that he had been a one-person business, in a sense. He had never been the administrator of a state. He had never been a senator. He never had any large staff beneath him that he had to organize. He basically was a single person corporation and he tried to bring that to the White House. Is that what happened? (laughs) Who wants to take that one, Tim? (laughs) He never had a boss aside from his father and he was in charge of these large deals and corporations and stuff, but he never worked in a bureaucracy. So he didn't pick up what's necessary in order to actually manage a large organization completely the opposite of Eisenhower, who understood how to do that. Trump did not, and he thought he could run things by making deals with people and individually dealing with lots of individuals. And that was one of the problems in the White House. And the chief of staff tried to get on top of it to set up an orderly policy process so that every decision that went to the president for his decision would be staffed out and there would be options laid out and all the bases would be touched. But President Trump rejected all of that. And that, I think, explains some of the chaos in the White House, in addition to the turnover that Steve mentioned. 
the Trump transition was set back greatly because Chris Christie had been running the transition operation, had vetted hundreds of people to present to the president-elect for people that he could choose to make his appointments with. And all of that was thrown out immediately after the election when Christie's work was thrown away. And once in office, President Trump was not a traditional Republican, so he did not have the kinds of connections with experienced Republicans that had experience in the White House and the cabinet and so forth that any other Republican candidate would have had. In addition to that, anybody who had criticized President Trump, for instance, in the primary campaigns, and a number of Republicans had done that, those people were persona non grata also. And so he had a very difficult time populating his administration with the kinds of experienced people that any other Republican would have been able to bring together in his administration. We now have the first outlines of the Biden administration's personnel. How do you see his presidency shaping up? Well, let me say, I am very impressed at this point of how smoothly his transition is going, how professionally it's going. He's ticking off all the points that we know are important. Now, it is true that as he gets closer to January 20th, he has trickier and trickier questions to deal with. So in some ways, you could say, He's dealt with the easiest ones first. But there's no question that, for example, he knew that you pick your White House staff first. Remember, Clinton was the one who waited virtually to the day he was inaugurated to pick his White House staff. You know that you have to know what your message is, your priorities are going to be. We know that his priority, chief priority, has to do with the pandemic. We tell them that they should deal with clusters, and we see how he dealt first with the national security cluster, then with an economics cluster and so forth. Then there's the question of demographics and how they deal with that. So, so far, I'm really quite impressed with this guy. And I think it probably helps that he's been around Washington for 20 odd years or 40 years, been the vice president. And many of the people that he's picked are people that he knows very well and knows how they work with each other. Yeah, I think that that's really important, that the experience that, of course, Biden has had, but the people that he's bringing in so far are very impressive and their experience. And it helped that there's been only four years since the previous Democratic president. And of course, Biden was vice president then. I also think that he's wise in not reacting immediately reflexively to President Trump's attempts to overturn the election. He's just being very calm, going ahead with the plan the way that he should be. And of course, White House staff first, but also bringing out the cabinet. The cabinets are sort of the highest visibility initial decisions of presidents. And he's going about that, I think, very carefully, deliberately, and bringing in very experienced people. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about the fact that he's going ahead with his plans to become president of the United States on January 20th, and amid what is incredible tumult, not just rhetorically at this point, too. Stephen Jim, thank you. Enjoyed our conversation today about the newest edition of your book, Organizing the Presidency. Thank you, Bill. You can find the book Organizing the Presidency, 4th Edition, on our website, brookings.edu, or wherever you like to buy books. A team of amazing colleagues helps make the Brookings Cafeteria possible. My thanks to audio engineer Gaston Reberedo, to Bill Feynman, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews. To my communications colleagues, Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration. 
And finally, to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.